the best allegory for Nazism is horseradish. So I should point out, though, I like horseradish, but I don't like Nazis. Oh, no, cancel. Hello and welcome to episode seven. Today's guest is one of my early Twitter followers and a friend, uh, good friend John. Hello. Hello, hello. I'm delighted to be here. How are Very you exciting. doing? I'm doing all right. It's, you know, it's a rather breezy Easter Sunday here in Edinburgh, but you know, having fun. I had a, woke up with a mild hangover, <laughs> went and had an English breakfast and feeling all right. Is it warm in Scotland? It was warm yesterday. It's not, not warm today. It was, it was rather lovely yesterday. I went walking up Carlton Hill to read rather gorgeous up there but it's very very breezy today actually you know i went out to the shops to get some milk and it was quite cold it's gonna snow at some point in the next couple of weeks apparently which i'm not looking forward to i've seen that um that's that's, that's britain for you know the moment things get nice it t- makes a 10 for the worse immediately yeah, when I actually started the podcast, that was immediately after that blizzard weather that hit my county and the east of England. Mm. And then, I think it was episode four, it, st- it was hailing during the episode. And then on Monday last week, there was a bit of a heat wave. Obviously now Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday episode, go on. Uh, yeah, it's not bad outside. I might go outside later. Um, yeah, I can see a big. I have a, my window. I can see right out across the first and the fourth, five, mm. and there is just I can just see the wave of cloud coming across my way and moving out into the North Sea. There was a couple of days when I first moved here in last year, where there was a huge like weeks worth of storms and me and my flatmate just stood in the kitchen and watched it come towards us and sweep over us this you know if i was a poet i'd have written something interesting but i'm not a poet that sounds like a gap in your uh, cv that needs filling i don't think i'd be a very good poet i no. talk too much now uh, I have said this is a bit of a um, forewarning, consumer for consumption forewarning. I'm brief. I am uh, somewhat plagued by blotchy Wi-Fi connection, which is very tragic. And also, uh, <laughs> he shakes. We've got the uh, visual up. He shakes his head in despair. <laughs> I have enough experience with bad Wi-Fi for my own podcasting. I mean. We had, we last recording we did on Thursday, we got hammered because the Zoom link wouldn't work. So I had to record it through OBS and then the Discord. It's, it's not very easy doing this stuff. I see why people do all this stuff in person. They just get around the microphone and do it. Mm. But it's post, a struggle. Post COVID, I think I will probably invite people around 
I'll buy some proper equipment. My mic cost fifty pounds, which I think is a fairly healthy investment. But um, I've I, my mic cost me about forty quid, but it refuses to work. So I use the mic in my webcam, which is about the same quality, and it it irritates me because it's a webcam mic, and I have an actual microphone here with a boom, and it's got a muffler, and mm. it looks nice. And I can, but I have this webcam mic which works just fine. It's a bit. It, it's sort of both gratifying and irritating at the same time. You're serious about your podcasting. Tell the good people of Peak Performance what your podcast is about. I do a podcast called I Quit Star Trek with my esteemed Twitter friend, Olivia. And how this came to be is that Olivia was watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And one time she just poked her and Several occasions through it, she basically went, I quit Star Trek because it just got that cursed or that absurd or that insane. <laughs> and it just became a joke in our sect of Twitter that whenever Olivia was getting upset about something, we'd all go, are you going to quit? And then one time we have another, we have a Discord chat. And one time on there, someone was like, Olivia, you should do a podcast. And they kept pestering and pestering her. And then as a joke, I went, if you do a podcast, it's going to be called I quit Star Trek. And then a day later, we were chatting and she was like, should we just do a podcast then? And that was in November. So I think our first episode was recorded the week of the US election. And we've done, this is our 21st podcast this Sunday. And it's fun, it's fun. We, what we do is we watch them each week. We watch an episode of Star Trek, chosen by our guest. And we chat about why it's, well, the, originally it was like why it's cursed or horrible or why it makes us angry. But what it sort of evolved into is looking at why writers write certain things, why they write bad things, why they might start writing something they think is good and it ages badly, or how we can learn from how something's written, ba written badly, or how, it's per how the, a bad piece of writing has personally affected us. Mm. So, I know, if people do go listen to it, I recommend starting with our first episode. We talk about the original series episode of the Amiga Glory, and we talk a lot there about how Star Trek, which has a lot of strong anti racist motives, wrote an episode that is about the Yellow Peril. Mm. And it was a very, that, and that's sort of what it started as a joke. Like, it's, it's a very jokey podcast. We spend a lot of time laughing at ourselves and making fun of each other. But it's sort of strangely evolved into this sort of getting quite deep about why Star Trek is. It's a cultural and I often, critique. Pun? It's a cultural critique. Yeah, it's a cultural critique of Star Trek writers and the genre and Star Trek fans, I think. We look at certain episodes that fans are fine with and we wonder why it was okay. Um, like last week we did an episode of Voyager called Faces in which a character of half-human, half-Klingon origin is split into a Klingon version and a human version, which obviously, as a mixed-race person, rather pissed me off mm. as a concept. Just to mow my language down there. But Thank you. No problem. I, I need to learn to do this. It's, you know, my inevitable career as a teacher of some kind. I can't just swear at my students every day. <laughs> but... That's the sort of thing. It's like we do absolutely wacky episodes. 
like we did, um, if uh, your listeners know Star Trek, Armand Bashir, which the characters get stuck in a James Bond pro- holonet program. We did that and that was very fun. But we also, it's interesting to do that and then do the really, like understanding why stuff is bad. And that's the kind of, that's, that's my podcast experience. And it's very fun. It's, you know, I've been wanting to do a podcast for ages and I was always like, oh, I'll be history or something. And having actually done it with Star Trek, which is not what I had expected to do it with, it was actually quite fun to get into it this way. So I do kind of wish I had a history podcast as well. Mm. Well, you can do both. I'm sure you can do can one do after both. the other. Uh, yeah, I mean... Even today, I was just thinking about it on Twitter and talking to people about it. I might do it. I don't think I do it as frequently, though. Probably every couple of weeks, once a month. I have, like, proper chats with people as opposed to this, which is very... What I do with Olivia, which is very ad-lib. I still love doing it, though. You know, it's great to talk to people about Star Trek and how it affects them. And usually the best bit is the when we talk about the podcast and we finish recording, we usually have, we end up talking for like an hour or so with the person, people we've had on just about Star Trek and about how it's related to them. And it's fun. You know, Hmm. if people like Star Trek, but also think if you are in the the perfect sweet spot where you love Star Trek, but also hate Star Trek, it's a good podcast. Hmm. I think it's, it's taught me a lot about reviewing media critically. Mm. and still be able to enjoy it because you said you know you go on twitter and you always have people like you can't watch this thing you can't do enjoy this thing because it's like this or that and it's oh why do you hate this thing where you're you know that's such an unfair criticism is you're allowed you should be able to say something like star trek doesn't star trek don't producers have not treated women well or black people well but we can still draw lessons that we can still improve on it yeah. And, you know, it's a very nuanced podcast for something that is basically two idiots mucking about. You know, like, our most rated content was we, I made Olivia eat eels live on Twitch. Yeah, so I was going to talk about that. <laughs> I, would you like, am I going to have to try and explain why that happened? Yes. Olivia, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But, so, if I remember correctly, basically somebody came on Twitter and was like, I'm new to start Twitter, come follow me so I can interact with this stuff. You know, just you're trying to get into it. And somebody replied to that being like, how dare you beg for Twitter followers, basically? Which, you know, even if someone was just like, come follow me, I'm really not sure it's worth the energy to go out of your way to have a go at someone for, like, at the end of the day, it's just Twitter. It's mm. just the internet having so as an, uh, someone on Twitter, I think it was friend Terry, was just like, get me to it, just like come follow me and I'll do this as a joke. And then underneath that, as a reply to that, I went, get me to a thousand followers and I'll make Olivia eat eels. As like a yeah, no, fuck you, where you should be, you should be okay, do this sort of thing. This is an encouraging act. Olivia went, yes, I'll do it. And then I kept, and then people started following me. And I went from like 650 followers and like 800 followers in like two days. Sort of ranked up and every single time, every once in a while, someone would be like, so when is Olivia going to eat the eels? 
And it went from this joke thing to a deadly serious thing where people, we had guests on the podcast who were like, so when is Olivia going to eat the eels? <laughs> and then I went over a thousand followers and I was like, Olivia's going to have to eat the eels now. And then two months passed because we couldn't find anywhere to send us eels. Because jelly eels are not an easy thing to find. No, it's like traditional London food, though, isn't it? It's a, yeah, they're they're sort of up there with things like actually, you know, fish and chips and pie and gravy that came part of the nineteenth century sort of industrial food revolution. I'm not a food historian, though. I've met food historians; they are really cool people. But it's one of those dishes that comes in as part of this the sort of creation of industrial fast food. Because you've got to think, you can you you catch gel, you catch eels, you cook them, you put them in jelly, gelatin. That's just then preserved. As long as they're cool, they are edible for an extremely for a decent amount of time. Oh. They're disgusting, but it's a very London industrial food. So I went back to Edinburgh, which then of course so there was no way for me to eat them here because they don't you can't get them in Scotland. You can get lots of other disgusting food in Scotland. But you can't get jelly deals. So Olivia had to eat jelly deals live on Twitch in front of an audience of dozens. Mm. <laughs> and then I put the video on Twitter. She's not very pleased with me about that, I think. I did watch that. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be pleased to learn that. I've, um, I've been to Scotland. It's pretty. Um, but I did... I was in uh, Peebles... And I think we were in a, me and my parents were in a chippy and um, a man came in and ordered deep fried pizza and then proceeded to consume this, this giant fried pizza. My flatmate orders that. I think (laughs) if people have followed, people who follow me on Twitter will quite, fortunately recognize the concept because I have put pictures of it on Twitter. It's, but there's a generally ongoing feud where those of us on British Trek Twitter send photos of our food to Americans on Trek, tw- Trek Twitter just to terrify them. Mm. And I think the Scottish food is pushing it too far because it's just even people on English Twitter are just like, what the hell is that? Which understandable, but you know I'm partial. I'm not. I'm not partial to a deep fried pizza. Though my flatmate who works at the Chippy attests that they are freshly made pizzas delivered to them before deep frying. But I will partake in a white pudding or a haggis or a black pudding. Those are all, I think, acceptable forms of terrifying food. Acceptable terrifying. Yeah, that was acceptable terrifying. Yeah, like a fairground ride, like going to, I don't know, Chesterton World of Adventures. I don't do, I don't do roller coasters. Don't ask me about that. I won't do. <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, I don't, I don't do roller coasters. I don't do horror films. I just, you know, I'm not. That's not how I like to get my adrenaline in. So you like Star Trek. We could probably dip into a little bit more Star Trek before we do... Our main topic today will be military history. Oh, boy. And a bit of uh, German army bashing, that sort of stuff. Um, 
solid content. I mean, I can segue across. I'm good at that. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I mean, one of the side Star Trek projects I'm doing is I am trying to write a history of the Federation Klingon Cold War. Okay. Well, it's it's interesting because it's one of these things that is very characteristic of a certain part of Star Trek that sort of just gets ignored. Because like it is what underlines like all of the original, all of the Kirk era Star Trek, is the fact that the Federation and the Klingons are engaged in a very close ideological conflict that sees them, you know, in this part is at the core of you know two of the six Star Trek films is this conflict between the Federation and the Klingons. It's the core of a lot of the original series, but it sort of gets it always exists in the background. As it'll be just trying to find to tie it together in the style of a lot of histories of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And one of the sort of interesting things I'm asking is how does a democratic democratic society that prides itself on respecting individual liberty and societal liberty and non-interventionism defeat a expansionist imperial power? Because you can't just not confront, you have to confront an imperial power to defeat it. That's a lesson of history. You can't stand back, you can't legislate an imperial power to defeat it. You have to stand up to it, whether it is, you know, the archetypal form of Nazi Germany or, you know, the British Empire or the French Empire or the Soviet Union. It gets defeated when you stand up to it. You know, even if you view you know, I arguably view the nature of decolonization of the French empires as being the result of people standing up to those empires. So how do you take, but that requires intervention, you have to be involved. You have so to how, pick are your... the, how are the Klingons? I'm like the bridge, if you picture me as the bridge between Star Trek canon knowledge and complete normies, I'm sort of in the middle. How do <laughs> the, the Klingon empire are, it's very masculine, isn't it? It's quite aggressive. It Culturally. this is the thing. Is there a sort of two Klingon empires? And I think that's even more interesting. Is that the original series Klingon Empire is so painfully an allegory for the Soviet Union and the peak and PC uh, People's Republic of China? You know, it's got very the Klingon the Klingon characters have really problematic. Orientalist tendencies, you know, they are browned up with big twizzling mustaches, and that's not great. But it was 1968, so I'm not sure what we're expecting of them. Mm. But from sort of the films onwards, they sort of they are a sort of they're a warrior culture, but they're a warrior culture bounded on tradition and honor, and that sort of has led that sort of realignment of the Klingons as being less racist, let's face it, which is a good thing. It's a dictatorship. Yeah, well, this is the thing, is that they're technically a feudal monarchy, but there is the the king, the sort of monarch of the Klingons is the Emperor Kalos, except that until later in TNG, the Emperor Kalos has been, is not, there's no emperor. It's an interregnum, basically. Oh. So it's called an empire. There is an emperor. No one sits in the throne until 
they find a Kalos clerk. This is a spoiler for the next generation, but it's not really relevant. But they basically find a clone of Kalos the Unforgettable, who was like the guy who found the Kigon Empire, and make him the emperor. So essentially, the, until then, the Klingon Emperor has a feudal monarchy without a monarch, run by a council of noble houses. And in so, space. <laughs> do they? Is most of their empire? I'm guessing their planets that they take over aren't. I'm not sure what the terminology is. I'm not sure if you call them like racially Klingon, like. They're not Klingon people. Do they conquer people and then... This is the interesting thing, is that it's pretty clear from the language of the original series, the original series films, and from certain allusions and from one episode of TNG, that the Klingons conquer other people. Mm. And that they probably enslave other people. Oh, no. Yeah. That's in the original series. It's not, at least by... TNG design, it's clear the Klingons don't do the whole slavery torture shit anymore. But they do occupy planets that where the people there don't want them to be there. No. So the to bring it back to the Edge of Midnight scene, the quest, the thing I want to do with the Klingons there is that when we see the Klingons at the beginning of this Cold War and Discovery, they are a warrior race that is leaning very far into their ancient traditions. But by the time we see them in the original series, they are incredibly modern. Their ships have gone from being looking like very gothic to very sleek. They are obsessed with efficiency. They still believe in, they still have these obsessions with honor, but it's a very sleek society. And that continues on in that sort of vein until the last original series film, Undiscovered Country. So the Klingon, I wanted to do this thing about how does a society with its traditions become so obsessed with victory that it abandons what made it proper? Mm. You know, there's, there's lessons there to, about the United States and Cold War and post-Cold War problems where you are so obsessed with economics and GDP that you lose what people want to come to this country for, what people believe in even this country as well, that how much is a geopolitical goal, how much are you willing to sacrifice for that? Community. Because at the end of it, I'm writing... Pardon? Are you talking about community? What is being sacrificed for? Yeah, but not just community, but identity and unity. Because, you know, I, this is Star Trek, so if I, it's not Star Trek unless you're doing making a ham-fisted allegory to real life. So what I want to look at it is, number one, how do you defend democracy while still upholding the ideals of it? Mm. Like, what would that look like? How would it fail? How do we deal with those failures? And secondly, how do we maintain our cult? How does a society deal with its failure to make, with the bastardization of its own culture? Because that's my take on what happens to the Klingons during the Run Divisional series, is that their culture was bastardized by certain people within it to achieve certain goals. Mm. You know, you tell yourself, in my viewing, is that the Klingons told themselves there is only there is enough honor in the final victory that we can do whatever we want to get there. 
And that's how you justify conquering people and how you justify slaving people and throwing your own people under the, under the, under the wheels of progress. You justify yourself that victory will be enough. And that's, you know, that's a long-winded project and I will probably never finish it, but it's, it also means I get to look at fun stuff within like tying various canon events together and looking at how you get from the new, you know, I'm basically trying to tie the newest Star Trek show into the oldest one. And that's incredibly challenging and incredibly fun at the same time. So if the Federation ever decisively defeated the Klingons, would they integrate the Klingons in a very mellow, soft-touch way? That's... Oh. Well, this is the thing, is that in, you know, in TNG and DS9, you have this thing where the Cold War has been over for nearly a century, and Klingons are saying, basically, the Federation has conquered us without having to land on Kronos because we've gone soft. Because I don't think the Federation would have... There would be no denazification for the Federation. They would never send a fleet to Kronos and, you know, hold a Nuremberg trial. I don't think that's how the Federation works. That's how they want to fight a war. And I don't think it's... It's an interesting question, actually. I mean, because there's this whole argument the Federation conquers through cultural assimilation, and that's a common theme. But can one culture... But would they do that to the Klingons? I don't think they'd do it at the end of the, of the barrel of a gun. I think it would be as what happens in the shows. And a century of peace with the Federation changes what being Klingon means. You know, in the same way that 30 years of peace, or 30 years, it's been 30, nearly 30, 33, 34 years since the Cold War ended. Yeah. That has changed what it has meant to be in the Western world. It's changed what it's meant to be an American. Changed was meant to be British. It's changed was meant to be Russian, to be Ukrainian, to be Polish. It's changed. The lack of that disparity has changed our identities. It has made us reflect on how our identities were altered by that conflict. So that's sort of what I'm trying to achieve there, along with doing fun Star Trek stuff, really. And, you know, classic ham-fisted amicries. There's a lot going on there. There's There's a lot going on there feeds a lot into military history stuff as well, because, you know, it is an homage also to things like um, Dreadnought, which is the best history of the Britain and Germany before the First World War by Robert K. Massey, and things like um, Dan Todman's Britain's War, which is probably the best book about the Second World War. Those two, two volumes, best books I've ever read in the Second World War, and stuff like James Holland's history. This is all homages to other history and how it's written and the styles of that. Though I do need to read more history these days. I've just been sort of pottering through stuff from work. Smooth. Transition. Whoosh. Into uh, military history now. So, I know obviously a good part of, I'm talking about optics first, a good part of adulthood is saying, you know, like you see a lot of advice f- for everyone. 
that says you don't have to care what people think about a thing if you like it. Military history has here. <laughs> I wish you. I wish I should really put these on YouTube because he's just done this face, so like flinching pain face. Military history. I'm not sure if people have seen the, the um the Peep Show. Have you seen Peep Show? <laughs> <laughs> Peep Show episode where Mark gets a friend who, uh, on the surface, spoilers if you haven't seen Peep Show, a friend who he's he's like I finally got a friend, and he's dressing in the German army uniform, and they're they're, they're cosplaying and they're like getting really into. Like the uh, the German POV to sort of really get into the authentic, and then he's he's ranting at Mark whilst they're dressed up in Wehrmacht uniforms, and then he goes, "All I'm saying is, England for the English," and Mark goes, "Don't you mean Germany for the Germans?" <laughs> There's this weird connotation that military history is, in one sense, white teenage dudes. But more specifically, you have, and I'm sure we're going to roast on this. Where are these? Yeah, immediately. The subculture within that of... So these are people who... I mean, let's to be clear, we're going to talk about a lot of military history because it's actually an incredibly... It's all of history. I, I will start by saying that Something that was told me, um, a story and I chat to a lot on Twitter, the name of Jonathan Ware, follow, you follow him at Reassess History. He's a um, big project now is he's writing history of the Welsh, said fish for the Welsh, but he once said military, he once basically, I think he wrote a thread about it on Twitter, military history should be better, best viewed as a subset of social history, and a subset, as a point at which social history and political history and technological history meet hmm. and if you view it through that lens it just becomes immediately more interesting if you view it through social history especially when because his i start to this is a good point to start on the war stuff because he that is a war and a lot of the popular history of the german war effort is stagnant and it's static it's like is the, I'm not going to call it decrepit because there's new stuff coming every day, but the popular history exists in a terminal state of disinterest with new ideas. Mm. It's a lot of Cold War memoir <sighs> fetish, yeah. right, where the German generals tried to revive the, wow, we came up with Blitzkrieg. It was this very cool concept. Lots of tanks, lots of planes. Uh, it's all it was, a, and they did that this in the. <laughs> they did that in the post-war period to, to look cool. Not just to look cool. It was the simple fact that once we and the Americans figured out we're going to fight the Russians, we were like, okay, who knows how to fight the Russians? And we looked in the prisons, and it was full of all these German generals who fought the Russians. And we went, they know how to fight the Russians. Like, why don't we te- get them to teach us how to fight the Russians? And the Germans, of course, knew that if they told, if they went, well, we don't know how to fight the Russians, we lost. They get chucked back in prison or they wouldn't have a job. So they went, yes, yes, we know how to fight the Russians. Let us tell you how we fought the Russians. Let me tell you, tell us how you beat, we beat the Russians. Mm. And what that results in is Wehrmacht generals ending up as chiefs of staff in NATO, as running the Bundeswehr, 
Yeah. And the and 30 to 40 years of people like Hans von Luke and others go driving, going, doing staff ride tours in Normandy with coaches full of Santa's cadets and Royal Tank Regiment officers and US Armored Corps guys. Stopping at various points and going, ah, oh, yes, this is how we did this, this is how we did that, this is how we blew up all your tanks. Well, all these guys take very detailed notes. And then they all graduate to become historians. And then you end up with the narrative the Germans were very good at this. And there's no counter from the Russians for two reasons. One, it's a Cold War. No one believes anything the Soviets say. Mm. Two, Soviet archives are incredibly impossible to get access to. So there is this brief window between about 1991 and the end of the 90s, where you everyone with this dive into the Russian archives, the free for all. And you end up with really interesting stuff about how the Russians fought the war, how the Germans were really crap at stuff. Like, for example, that um, you know Prokhorovka, the big tank battle at Kursk. Yes. The general archaeological view, along with other things, that Prokhorovka was not a very large tank battle. It basically involved 20 T-34s falling into a tank ditch and getting picked off by T by Tigers. But the Soviets and the new Russian government have their own narrative of it, which is so, it's such so strong. The historian who wrote, the German historian who wrote the book of Prokhorovka is banned from Russia. Oh. I can't remember his name. But that's why there's such a convoluted history. And when it comes, the Warabur I consider beyond the Nazi apologism deeply uninteresting. Because like the, the interesting thing about the German war effort for me is how they got away with it for so long. Because the Germans lost the war in June 1940, if not September 1939. Oh. Well, the September 1939 one is, I say, because quite simply, the moment the British and France, Britain and France declared war, Germany were finished either way. Um, don't you think Lord Halifax could have um, put the Germans' the, terms? No, the well, there would have been, they wouldn't. There might have been a negotiated peace of some kind, but as early as November 1939, it's quite clear that no matter how the Germans want the, the British want the war to go. They don't think they will not accept peace while Hitler is in power. They would accept peace if, the, if the, the sort of discussions are we will begin negotiations if the generals overthrow him, if there's a revolution at home and there's a new civilian government, but we will not negotiate with Hitler directly. Mm. Those sort of discussions are happening in terms of war aims in October, November, December 1939. And they're thinking the war is going to end then the same way 1918 ended, with a British blockade and a steady war effort in the Western Front leading to a collapse of civilian morale at home. Which is, quite frankly, a very reasonable assumption for how the war with Germany would have ended. That's why they, the Germans go for France in 1940 as an all or nothing, because if they don't crack France, they have no way to win the war. The crack in France is a miracle. So that's why it's the other one since June 1940, because you crack France that quickly, your only chance is to follow up with an attack on Britain immediately. And that's impossible because 
The Luftwaffe is shot. The army is shot. Manpower is shot. The army is exhausted. Sure, the British in Kent, there might be something like, there might only be like 20,000 blokes milling around with not enough equipment to fight off the, from cattle. But the German army is not ready to cross the channel. If they had been in June 1940, they might have done it, but you're asking for the Germans to have prepared for an invasion that they didn't think was possible. You know, in May 1940, if you told the German army, oh, in a month we need you to prepare to invade Britain, they laughed at you because they didn't think they were going to invade, they didn't think they'd make it halfway through France. So mm. the German plan in 1940 was not designed to knock France out. It was designed to destroy the German, British and French armies in Belgium. And then you turn on France, you find a new conservative campaign. Does France collapse under the Eastern? But I still think the war was lost to Germans as early as June 1940. So the interesting question is not, wow, how great were the Germans? It was, how were they able to keep that chaotic ball of absurdity that was Nazism and the Nazi war effort going for five years after that? A lot of people wonder as well why... the Germans were getting stuck in the snow in December 1941 and they're just you know they're just getting they're miles they are five miles from Moscow they can see the advance guard can see the spires of the Kremlin that you know that's one of the lines but it is one of these things where they were counting people being like we can see it but we cannot take a step forward and then they declare war on the USA. Well, that's what happens when your country is run by Adolf Hitler, who was not a very sane human being. It's, um, yeah, the problem with the Nazi regime is that everything that made it work was because of everything that made it so successful had a lot to do with Adolf Hitler, and everything that destroyed it was to do with Adolf Hitler. Because mm. he had no perspective. He was, as somebody, I can't remember who pointed plenty of people pointed out in real life and to me is that the thing to remember about Hitler is that if Hitler had not been there someone else would take his place and it might have been somebody smarter it might have been somebody who didn't declare war Germany, it might have been somebody who waited a year before invading the Soviet Union it, it's important to remember that Nazism is not a very clever ideology you know, not just in the sense of the Second World War but even in modern senses that Nazis and the far right are not very clever people. They have very clever strategies, but that doesn't mean they're clever. You know, and a good example of this would be that the Luftwaffe, right? Did you know that every single Luftwaffe bomber that's up until I think 41, 42 was capable of dive bombing? Really? So your HE-111, your JU-88s, they were all designed to be capable of dive bombing because the Luftwaffe procurement guy at the time was a friend of Hermann Goering's. He knew nothing about aircraft procurement and aircraft demand, but thought it'd be really cool if they could dive bomb. And the thing about if planes can dive bomb is that you can't, you can't build a heavy bomb or a good, a good side medium bomb and have it capable of dive bombing because it just can't take the strain of the G-force of doing a dive. Because that's not what a medium bomber should be doing. But the, the JU-88 and the HE-1, they could all dive bomb, which is just ridiculous. 
<laughs> That's ridiculous love for Orem. There's an incident in 1941 where the new Luftwaffe procurement minister goes to see Billy Masherson. And, very, and he's like, we need lots of new parts for the ME109. We need to churn those out. They're good. We like them. And Billy Messerschmitt is like, that's great. Would you like to see my nice new jet fighter? And the Luftwaffe procurement guy's like, no, I would not like to see your jet fighter. In fact, stop working on that. Bin it. I want more ME109 because it doesn't work and we, it won't help us fight the war. So Billy Messerschmitt goes, yes, yes, all right. Six weeks later or so, I need to check the book. Some... James Hall's War of the West, I think this was. The procurement minister finds out that Billy Messerschmitt is still building the jet fighter. Because Philly Messerschmitt went to Goering, was like, your man is saying, I can't build my jet fighter. And Goering went, oh, you can build your jet fighter, that's fine. And I said, it's okay. Because the entire ideology of Nazism is built on this competition idea of basically fuck that other guy. You know, Hitler would have two departments or two groups of people working on the same project. Because the whole belief was in the, the warped nature of its, the view of social Darwinism was that you'll get the best results if you make people compete against each other. Which, you know, if you're trying to find out who's running, who can run the fastest, maybe. But if you're trying to build a good jet fighter, no. If you're trying to run a war effort, you don't make, you don't split your manpower and intellectual resources in half. Because that's just, you, you just look at two groups of people. With half the resources they should, coming up with two ideas, and you can only choose one. So you, no matter how what happens, you've wasted half your resources immediately. Or more than half. Yeah. Nazism sucks. The Nazi Germans were not very clever. It's a fucking miracle they won, they got within five miles of Moscow, let alone last the war for five years. And if you're aware of why? It's quite weird what the have we talked before about a book called The Moscow Option? Oh, I've heard of The Moscow Options. It's, it's a one of the classic what is one of the classic ultimate histories, yeah. Yes. And one of the things that they talk about there's lots of Englishmen playing cricket. Uh in uh, the Moscow option, it used at the start of chapters. There's usually um, the ally, the British leaders are watching a cricket match and talking about um, war, war policy. Uh, I mean, that amuses me because cricket was suspended during the war. Oh, really? I believe, I believe almost all professional sports are suspended for the duration. I believe it's cricket. I don't think it was. Uh, it might have been an unofficial cricket match. It just deeply amuses me that this idea that, oh, the England, they discuss it all over cricket because, you know, there was no batches that law- laws was used as a um, mustering point for um, conscripts mm. in London. Like, if you got your papers, you go to Lords and they sort you out there. Um, or the Oval. The SS. The SS are a weird organisation because it's entirely synthetic. What I mean by that is the German army is an army like you might have a french army and then a communist french army but it would still be the french army with different sort of swings to it whereas the ss is almost like a rival it's like a state within a state the, uh, i mean this is, this is clarify you you know i have there are plenty of people i'm not a 
my when I do World War Two, I generally tend to do brush aside, looking at that kind of thing. But I, you know, you can't do World War Two without knowing about the SS and this sort of thing. And the key thing to remember about the SS is that being fanatical is not the same as being good. No. Being able, being having a collection of 16-year-olds who are quite willing to sit in a ditch for 12 days to blow up a Cromwell tank in Normandy is not good soldiering. It's not how you win a war. It's not how you win anything. And the SS, as this institution, are not... There is nothing ideal about the SS. They were brought into existence as part of the thing of the Nazis, where they believed that you get the best other people making them compete. And what that essentially insulted in was, by 1944, SS officers were going to regular army units, picking out everybody who was actually a physically fit and capable soldier. Or they'd go to units and be like, if you don't want to join the SS, please take one step back. You know, this, mm. the SS is not this elite volunteer organization. It's basically the German, it's basically a bunch of ideological fanatics going on picking the best of men and equipment. And they're not using it very well. But you, so usually, if you, if we're doing the i, ideal country. Yeah. Brain mode. If you're making a country, you have. If you think you've got a sandwich, think you've got a subway sandwich or something, and then you open it up and you just dollop some uh, some jam or whatever on top of it. And that is the ideology on top of your nation state. And for most of the Third Reich, it's kind of just like the Second Reich or Weimar Germany. The civil servants and all the bits of a normal sandwich are the same as normal. And then, but instead of just dolloping a bit more of something on top, the sort of Nazi filling, they're then making a rival... This is a weird analogy. Way, no, no. Well, that's this is you're falling into this the much more complicated concept, not just clean Wehrmacht, but the clean Germany, which is a. Oh no, 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 no! Not, I'm not saying that I it's know. a good sandwich. I'm not. No, I think it's a tasty sandwich. No, it's a. If you want to understand how horrible this sandwich is, let's say you've taken a nice meatball. Your Weimar Republic is a nice meatball sub. It's, okay. it's not a very well-made meatball sub, but it's a meatball sub. What Nazism is is you take every bit apart. And you, and let's say the Nazism is um, is um, <laughs> what's your least favorite topping, Harry? This is what's your least bri- favorite sauce. This is a brilliant analogy for the uh, yeah. podcast audience. Least favorite, probably sauce. like uh, uh, horseradish. Okay, so Nazism is horseradish. Oh. So let's take, let's say we have a sandwich, a, a meatball sauce, meatball sauce, bit of salad or something. What yeah, do you do? This is lettuce. So you take, first thing you do is you take the core, you take the thing that keeps everything together, which is the bread. You dip it in horseradish. Disgusting. Then you start, then you take all the ingredients, you dip them in horseradish. Vile. Vile. So then you have, so it's like the bread, if you, you know, so I said, you know, your bread is your democratic institution. It is now horseradish. It is soggy and vile. You can't use it anymore. <laughs> so you, I guess so it's like, you, that's useless. And then you have your meatballs that's soaked horseradish. Your sauce is because this idea that Nazism existed is this outside of Germany. The Nazis, over the course of the six years before the First Second World War, reshaped Germany's institutions in their image using them. You know, the same civil servants were there, 
But if you were a civil servant in 1933, and you were still a civil servant in 1939, what that job means to you, what you do, who you associate with, your relationship with politics, your relationship with the Nazi, with any party, relationship with the Nazi party has completely changed. Mm. You know, because one day, you know, you might spend all your days stamping through regulations on policing, or I'm trying to think of a good example. Okay, we'll go with planning regulations, right? Like how civil narcissist planning, like you know, town planning. Yeah. Council plan. You go through this, and it's sort of things like, you know, you're told, oh no, you, you're given books, like, no, don't you can't approve these regulations for expansion, but that was a Jew, or he's a communist. Mm. So it's like, okay, fair, you know, they're not, you ask why, you explain why, because they're in these, you know, you move on. Then it's, you know, you must knock this building down because um, X from the party wants to do it, and you go, okay, and that becomes norm. Mm. So you're saying and you that change the person, the person that goes through the, the 30s in similar jobs is morally compromised and is basically sympathetic or sort of like soft on it's not quite it is simply that if in a system of Nazi Germany if you are putting your head down and trying to survive yes you end up just I'm not going to cast a moral judgment on people who do that because you know you might be sure you as a civil servant you're perfectly if you the guy next to you said no I won't stop that man but I won't do this because justice is social democrat. He might be in a prison or a camp now. And you know that he disappeared. You know that his wife disappeared. You know that his kids have been given to another boy, to another family. You don't want that to happen to you. No. So you keep going. I'm not going to cast a more, I'm not qualified, I think, to cast a more judgment on those people. But I think that we have to understand that in a society like Nazism, people become complicit in it. In any society which ideological justifications like that, you become complicit. You can't, for like, I mean, even to use a more close to home example, you cannot, a Victorian or Edwardian bureaucrat is complicit in some sense in what the empire does abroad. Because they prove of it, they disprove of certain actions, they you know, they issue a colonial notice saying, you know, we don't approve of this certain practice. And that results in a colonial policeman going in and doing something because you stamp a law, you're told it's the right thing to do, you send it off. And that's a difficult thing to comprehend about complicity, especially in systems, you know. Now I we're don't think... The, now we're, we're deep... Sorry, go on. We're in deep territory now. Yes, I now I realise we're getting into the consent that people give to political philosophies, which is very quite a different spiral to... It's a different spiral. I mean, I can spiral back to military history. The end point is that, with the SS, is that the difference between the SS and the Wehrmacht is not that the Wehrmacht were clean or they fought a different war, that the Wehrmacht are comparable to the armies of the Allies of the Soviet Union, because... The German, I mean, for a fundamental starting point, the German army swore an oath to Hitler. Yes. And there um, and they did Hitler's actions and they had officers who were inherently political Nazi. And when it comes to the orders thing, the fundamental truth is that there is, this, there is an overwhelming amount of evidence from the Eastern Front 
that if you are the German Lancer or Sergeant or officer turned around and went, I do not, I will not shoot these people today. You'll see Piri officer will go, that's fine. And you will see no action taken against you. Mm. There is um, a We Have Ways, We Have Ways Make You Talk podcast with James Holden now, Mari. I do recommend if you like World War II. They have a guy on who, t- who wrote a, a case study on a German regiment that commit various crimes in Latvia, I believe, or Belarusia, where basically there's instances where company commanders were like, no, I will not shoot this entire village. Mm. The company sergeant went, okay, I'll do it. And there was no punishment for either of them. Have you read a so this- book called, I should really have sort of got these books out as preparation, called Sol Darton? Sol Darton is meant to be a very good book. I have not it's read like it. It's like a sociology. It's a sociology. And then it does a little bit of comparison to, actually to the Vietnam War. Uh, uh, in that people would be killed uh, as quote-unquote partisans, you know, sort of insurgents. And then afterwards, they had like a... Um, uh, a positive um, selection bias, like a positive reinforcement bias, where if they found incriminating documents or ammunition on them, that would confirm that they were rebels. And if they weren't, they would sort of like forget about that. Mm. So you're creating a um, a sample which is all stacked. So you say, oh, we only shoot rebels. We only shoot... Um, terrorists because then they're like forgetting about the other portion of people yeah it's there is it's important to as i said history is social history military history is a form of social history and you get a much broader understanding of what the scale of war and the consequences of it viewed that way on personal levels and societal levels, because especially in Germany, I mean, there's some, back in, in, you know, three months ago when American democracy was nearly threatened by a bunch of fucking fascists, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger put a video where he's basically like, when I was a kid, I remember in Austria, sitting with old, seeing old men in bars and how dejected they looked, because they were losers because they fought for an, ideal, an ideology where they had murdered people and they'd known that's what they'd done and they had to sit and live with them. Mm. And that's the thing about the German army, the even just the, quite frankly, the Wehrmacht in the Second World War, because the thing about the SS is that they were proud of what they did, a lot of them, until the day they died. Whether that whether they died then at the end of a Russian bayonet or at the end of a British, heart, British artillery stonk or hung from a noose somewhere, they all died proud of what, a lot of them died, most of them died proud of what they did. But there are a lot of Germans, a lot of Austrians, a lot of people across Europe who knew at the time what they were doing was wrong. And that one of the things that if, if they had won would have happened, they wouldn't have had to live with that because there would have been no memory of it. So it's like they would have destroyed all evidence of what they had done. You would just, they had disappeared. You wouldn't have to think about it. But because they lost, they had done all these horrible things and they'd lost and they had to live with the fact they'd lost and they'd done these things. And that is 
it's difficult to imagine what it must have been like, especially for those people who've done these things and know they didn't had they didn't have to and done it because they've been pressured into it or done it for the society and told them what the right thing to do. And I know, because it's, you know, I'm not sympathetic to these people. There's no way which I'm sympathetic, but it's just a thing to understand about the Wehrmacht is that they knew what they were doing a lot of the time and they knew it was wrong and they did it anyway. You know, not everybody is a jackbooting... Crazy salute throwing guy sometimes you are a scared 19 year old kid from Dusseldorf and your sergeant who you're scared of tells you to go into a village and shoot people and all your mates are doing it and you do it too have you seen we're approaching the one hour mark so I think and also we've been a bit bleak for the past five minutes so I'm thinking we we slightly u-turn around a little bit have you seen Generation War I love Generation War it's such a brilliant piece of programming, and I it's think it's three sort of... three episodes long. I remember, um, at the the first one is in nineteen forty one, second mm-hmm. episode is in nineteen forty three, third episode is in nineteen forty five. It's five friends. Two of them are brothers who join the German army, and their dad is like some proud old sort of yeah. like Second Reich, probably a World War One veteran. Hmm. And I remember. I'm pretty sure everyone has this feeling when they introduce the five friends and there's the one dude who's Jewish and you think, oh, that that's ominous. That does not bode well for um, Jewish oh, character. Scary. Yeah, it's... it was. An, I think it's a kind of powerful piece of programming, especially considering it's a German piece of programming. I think there's some good German drama on this. I, the other one I'd recommend people, I'd recommend people is Babylon Berlin. Mm-hmm which is based off of a book and um, a comic about Berlin in the late 1920s. And that tells you a lot about German society and how you eat and the bitterness of it all and the failure of Weimar society, Weimar politics, to create, to answer the question of what, what do we do now? Which is you know, it's a problem we face now in Britain and America as well is this question of, what do we do now? Because what does America... America built an ideology since 1940, since... Arguably, since 1941, on defeating oppression, an identifiable oppression, you know, whether it is Nazism or the Red Menace, of defeating an identifiable enemy. But, you know, Poverty, disease, want, and ignorance might be very identifiable to FDR or beverage, but you can't, you, you know, you can't stick a face on a poster to defeat poverty. You can't stick a face on a poster and say, this is your enemy when I you're would, trying to defeat ignorance. I disease. would say Blair and Brown tried to do the war on terror. Well, the war on terror, the thing about the war on terror is that the war on terror was another, uh, was and still is another attempt to put, to try and put a face on evil. But the real, the, well, the war on terror was an inevitable fit. Other point, as I have some, I can't, it's probably my dad actually said to me, the simple solution to 
the aftermath of 9-11 was to speak to the people you know in Pakistan and Afghanistan and send in six blokes in a black or helicopter put a bullet in the back of his head. That's what at least sensible person would have done. You know, you know, you can say we killed like in five years and say we killed the man who did it. But you know, you want because to- now there's like a public mythology the outside of neocon neoliberal Twitter that it was an oil thing. And as far as I've, I mean, there's for starters, there's not oil in Afghanistan. Well, they went into Afghanistan because they, they went into Afghanistan because Afghanistan looked like a place we needed to go into. And I can't, I I don't know why I actually, when I say, I don't know why I went to Afghanistan. I just simply have not done enough reading to answer that question. So I'm well, not some of actually... some of Al Qaeda were in Afghanistan. Yeah. So they thought it, it looked like a good punching bag. Yeah, look like it, it was basically a slightly anguished American political side needing a punching bag. I will quite frankly say that as much as Saddam being hung by the Iraqi authorities was a good thing. Based. Probably the Iraq war was a disaster and a failure and was one has been one of the biggest foreign policy failures of the 21st century yes. so far. Fundamentally, I think that everything about it was poorly handled. I think there was no good intentions going into it. Should they have you know, scrapped it, the um, the guards? The what was the ter- um, Republican guard? The Republican guard. Should they have scrapped the Saddam loyalist? I am um, once again unqualified to answer the question of what the best thing to do in Iraq was. I think the only good thing that came out of Iraq was Saddam Hussein being, having gone to meet his maker. Rip. But everything else about this being disaster because both Britain and America were deeply uninterested in building an Iraqi society that functions for the Iraq, for Iraq. I think if you have to, if you overthrow a government and then start a country again, almost from scratch, it has to be something that you're really... It's like getting married. You have to be really dedicated to... You can't be like a half-hearted regime. The only success... The only thing... Closest thing to successful nation-building after total militia defeat is the end of the Second World War. And that only worked because we basically picked... Basically went... Looked at the list of Nazis and went, that one's fine, that one's fine, that one's fine, that one's fine. Ad finitum. And that's why Germany worked. And that, you know, we, whether that's a, that probably wasn't a good thing, but that's the only example we have of good post war nation building because nation building is difficult and it's hard. But the base principle is you don't say mission accomplished after two years. It would, <laughs> As George Bush did. Bush did. But I think the thing that pisses me off most about the Iraq war is that it has poisoned interventionism for decades. It's put in the minds of everyone, you know. The Iraq, the Syrian civil war has been going on for. 10 years now and we still live in a world where any attempt to try and alleviate the pain of the Syrian people you know there are plenty of bad attempts it's considered imperialism by a lot of people whereas let's face it I'm fairly sure that there is like the, this, the war would have been over quicker you know there were, if you want an example of what happens when you intervene and don't do anything you want to Libya you know well, the problem in Libya is not that we Bombed the sh- it's not that we bombed Gaddafi to defeat. The problem in Libya is that we bombed Gaddafi to a defeat and then decided not to help the Libyans afterwards. You know, that's why Libya is a f- failed state in the center of the North African slave trade at the moment, because we did, as my opinion, 
quite happy people to argue me about this, give me out new evidence. Is that I don't think, I think the issue there was that we didn't clean up after ourselves. Because quite frankly, Gaddafi going was a good thing. Because Gaddafi was, yeah, for a fundamental point, Gaddafi thought it was cool to blow up British planes and give the IRA Semtex. Yes. Which is bad. Like, <laughs> I'm all pro-Irish unification, but Gaddafi supplying these guys with Semtex is bad. This is going off topic. I'm probably, you know, who knows? At the end of the day, interventionism is difficult, but poisoning it and calling it imperialism is bad. Assad needs to go. I don't know why. I don't know why Assad needs to go is a bad take on the past the internet. So I don't think it's Assad needs to go. I think it's just yeah. I think it's just that the alternative is also quite bad. So before, so Assad has actively been bombing his own people and dropping chemical weapons on them for a decade now. Well, like I mean, it's, we would. Yeah, it's one of these things. Where it's like you would. I don't understand why Assad is bad and needs to be removed. Is a bad concept when he is still consistently bombing his own population. Well, bef- okay. So if you remember the early media coverage of the Syrian Sorry. civil war before ISIS took Mosul and stood out amongst the, the different Brits, types yeah. of Islamist rebels. They were lumped they were lumped in as just Syrian if you looked at like the twenty Yeah, they're lumped in as the Syrian opposition. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so if and I'm not sure when David Cameron I respect David Cameron actually for giving a vote in Parliament on whether or yeah, not Yeah the bombing vote was twenty fourteen. Which was before ISIS Well no it was just the, the bombing vote in Syria was, I believe, actually a direct result of the big ISIS offensive that summer. Oh, really? in January. Yeah, because it comes because, I believe it comes because they need, because ISIS is threatening the democratic rebels. I'm not, you know, I'm going to look it up. Because but I believe I, it comes because... I was sure that the bombing vote was specifically against the Syrian government. E.g. Assad. Yeah, which, oh, here we go. Um, British airstrikes in bombing campaign. Oh, here we go. So the vote was in July 2015. Here we go. Yeah. Recap updates. 10-hour debate. It was in July. It was in 2015. Mm. Um, Just after the bath. It was in 2015. And it was ex- the ex- it was an extension of its strikes from Iraq into Syria. So the strikes in Iraq were presumably h- helping the. They were in request of the um, Allied government. The, I mean, it's prob- a bit basic to call them good, but the friendly Iraqi government against and the Kurds against ISIS in Iraq. Yeah. But the attacks because. The reason it was extended is because we could hit um, various targets of Syria from the RAF bases in Cyprus. And it was basically to... Yeah. And of course, this, the basically, it's one of these things where, you know, 
I... Military action is difficult and you can't, there's no good way to perform military action. There's no perfect way to engage. But in the but mid- at the end of the day, okay. airstrikes against the Islamic State in Syria will probably be the best move we can make with the power we had because we weren't exactly going to send an expeditionary force. But if you are bombing things. President Assad... We weren't. We were bombing the IS. I don't think there were any attacks made against the... The Americans often hit Assad stuff. We don't. Yeah, but the vote, was, the vote was about bombing the Syrian government. No, it was about... I'm, I've got it here. It's, um, it was about bombing ISIS. Yeah, the vote was to bomb... To hit Islamic State targets in Syria. There's never been a vote to... Don't think... Am I just going absolutely off? Well, no, it's, um, it's Twitter on the brain, which is that Twitter, you know, you hear enough, I'm fairly sure you'll tell, everyone will tell you we were bombing Assad. Yeah, but, do you um, know, actually, quick, a quick um, punch at left-wing Twitter before we, we need okay. to wrap it up, which is so tragic because I feel like we have so much to talk about. I can come back another time. You'll have to come back at a beautiful face. Um... Left-wing Twitter has this weird thing because you've seen that the Russian army is doing oh, some yeah. very shady manoeuvres next to the Donbass as of late March, early April 2021. Lots of videos of people in their cars driving down the road in uh, southern Russia or eastern Ukraine driving past, you know, like dozens of tanks or dozens of... Yeah, uh, the Russians are doing their typical... The thing about... The, the two things to remember about the Russians, which is that the Russian army is not, when I say the Russian army is incapable of waging a military campaign as we understand it, I'm saying that the Russians could line as many T-55s up on the Ukrainian border as they want. They won't get within 20 miles of the border because they don't have spare parts, they don't have the training, the tanks are too old. The Russians fight their wars with Spetsnaz units and allies and limited equipment. It's all power protection, but I do also think that the Russians are deeply interested in wiping Ukraine off the map. Mm. Annexing them. Annexing. I think the Russians were perfectly happy to do that. And I think the other thing to consider is that Ukraine, the last time they had a go at it in 2014, they got with Crimea, they got away with it because the Ukrainians didn't expect it. And the Donbass has the Donbass has decayed into what it is now because the Ukrainian army learned to fight and fight well. You know. But my they won't have an easy time if they try it. I'm trying to wrap up the as much as I love to talk and trying to wrap it up, John, the left-wing Twitter takes were dreadful. Left-wing Twitter is absurd, Labour Twitter, because you have, like, these really good... I'm not sure if I've said this point on the podcast before, but maybe I'll reiterate it. You have, like, really good, juicy stuff about, like, Marxist theory of alienation, working-class solidarity, and emphasizing you know, decolonization and like the civil rights period and got minors and uh, LGBT people, unity, etc, etc, etc. You and know, they come out swinging for the Russians. And then on foreign policy, it's kind of like with the Soviet Union, it may or probably was definitely not a worker state. And then since then, there's no... I don't, let's not say... That. But it's, um, it's, uh, the, it's the principle of left... of um contorted left-wing radical uh, hyper radical in you know i'm not going to tar every left-winger far left person with the same brush because i know plenty of them who have very disparate views of the russians but 
There's a certain sect which views anyone the Americans don't like as an ally. Yes. Which, you know, enemy is my enemy is my friend. Iran for some reason. Yeah. Well, the Iran one is dumb because the Iranian government are a, this is theocracy with no interest in democracy or civil rights of any kind. The Russians, the Russians are basically three steps away from bringing back the Tsar sometimes. Yes. So, you know, Russia is... It makes sense if if there was a communist state that they supported in opposition to the USA, but it just seems like they don't like the USA. Yeah. I think... Well, it- by if Biden said I'm going to give more stuff to South Korea or maybe Taiwan, that would probably I don't like Joe Biden, but that would probably be based. I don't think Yeah, well the thing yeah, it's when we were research it's hard to see the problems with your own side when you are yelling them. So it's you know it is hard for people to recognize that the PRC and the Soviet Union and Russian Federation were and are empires. Yes. You know, it's perfectly easy for these people to understand that the United States is in itself a form of empire. Extremely informal one, but nevertheless. But for some reason, yeah, you know, it's not as it's the same as things of us said, but it's quite simply that it's not they don't know these things, it's choose not to. It's much easier to pretend that everything that doesn't agree with it's very hard to be critical, especially on the internet, especially on Twitter. And I think my you know, if I have one thing to tell your dear listeners is that don't go on Twitter expecting somebody to have a nuanced opinion on anything mm. that you probably know that already. And just don't engage with these people because they just Sometimes I find myself. Sometimes I'm glad I talked over you there. Sometimes I find myself um, arguing with them, and they just come out with absolute, absolute detritus. They're not. (laughs) He sighs in uh, tiredness. Well, I'm exhausted today because this morning I was dealing with people on left wing Twitter who were basically being like mixed rate. Um, when me- pe- women of colour have white boyfriends or husbands oh I saw that being colonised or betrays yeah so you actually see this on TikTok where you see mixed people mixed it's always Americans who say like oh my dad's a coloniser and the dad is literally just like a white dude or the mum is a white mum people and- went to prison for marrying across race. Yeah. People who were thrown out by their families, they were thrown out of houses, they were denied basic civil rights for this. And you, it's not... It's also, I think, an, an, a deep misogyny to this idea that women of colour have part of their identity destroyed when they marry white men. Or men or, you know... And there's another, as a side misogyny, that there are men of colour or men of any ethnic minority will have their ideology destroyed by marrying a white woman. But it's two sides of misogyny this idea that women of colour are so, that women are either in two, so inherently weak that their will will be imposed on a man, or they're such spinsters that they will impose their will on a man. It's a double misogyny and race, double ended sort of misogyny. 
and intensely and horrifically, I think, bigoted to think that mixed couples are somehow destructive to somehow acting against race and acting against race politics. Uh, point. I'd like to raise a point. Shall we, before you go and uh, destroy the American um, race discourse people, would you like to finish on a happy note? Yeah, let's well, let's finish on a happy note before because you know it's I feel like it's getting uh, deep down into. If you picture the internet like an iceberg. And at the top of the bottom, doing a Titanic right now. We're going right down into the Lord knows the internet is a very large place. What's a let me consult my magical word document where I've written down we have so many book of happiness. We have so many things to talk about. I don't even think we touched on all the World War II. I wanted to talk and I'm not we're not going to talk about this now, but we'll have to come back to this. Just the fact that people don't i mean i imagine there are people who don't even know that iraq iraq played a part in world war ii there was a coup that uh, oh yeah the um the anglo-iraqi war which was dumb the the vici france stuff oh great yeah operation export that's all fun Stuff. It comes into a list of things that basically is in a period of the war where Britain is scrambling around trying to figure out what to do with itself. It's like with World War One, people not realizing that there was loads. Obviously, you know, um, German Tanzania. There were loads of fronts outside the Western Front, as interesting as the Western Front is. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap it down. I know we're opening new topics. We have so much to talk about. We need to do more military history. We need to do the future of the late. I always want to talk about the Labour Party with people who come on the show. It's been one year of Keir Starmer, and oh I, I will. I won't expand. I'm just going to let out a long, exasperated sigh. Sigh, sad face. And <sighs> um, um, all I'm saying is, it. You know, as somebody who is as considering the week, I was gonna. I would say it could be worse considering the week we've had. I'm not entirely sure. No. Do you know? So. Let's say two minutes. So we're gonna two minutes, and then we'll um yeah okay we'll wrap it up. I bought a ticket for a gig, a boiler room. It's like dance music in the autumn, and now that there's the vaccine passport thing, do you know like if I had known I would have had to have got a vaccine passport, I probably that probably would have. I think I might have gone anyway, but that would have I would have taken that into consideration. And uh, well, we'll have to. That will go through equality legislation because it, I think it's unfair to expect young people to be able to get the vaccine when they're not yet. If Labour are sensible, they will oppose the bill. I just don't think they're very sensible right now. They care about optics a lot. They go through. They have a lot of um, what do you like? What do you call those uh, focus groups? Yeah, and folk, the thing about a focus group is that a focus group tells you what you want to hear. So yeah. you shouldn't use them. The only way to figure out what the public want is to tell them what you'd like to do and see what they'd say. And not in a focus group. You just have to go, we're going to do this and see what they say. You don't focus group it for 10 years. You do it. You know, no, there's a reason. Yeah. 
Labour governments have succeeded when they've gone, we're going to do this thing. And then they said, and this is why that's a good thing. So Atlee I've... got in because he spent five years, they had three years before the war ended and while the war, and while going, going, we are going to build this country and here's why that's a good thing. That's what Wilson did. And, you know, as much as I'm not, as much as Tony Blair is Tony Blair and Gordon Brown are Gordon Brown, they went, we're going to reduce, we're going to destroy childhood poverty. We're going to do this. And they did it because they convinced people it was a good thing. They did a lot of bad things that convinced people it was a good thing. John. But the Labour Party doesn't get in the government trying to find what people want to do. They do it and convince them that's a good thing. Let me just, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, you're not going to say anything. I'm going to say some key words. And then we're going to promise to come back in five or ten episodes, which one episode is every week. So that would be a month or maybe two months. And we'll come back to these key words. We're going to come back to that. We're going to do the Labour Party. We're going to do Paradox Games and some more World War Two stuff, some World War One stuff, some Cold War, Korean War. Uh, we'll do maybe Soviet War in Afghanistan. You know, there's loads of Cold War stuff. Um, Maybe a bit of Victorians. You're, you're a very smart man when it comes to history. So we can do the great game. I'm into the great game a lot. Great game um, is good stuff. We can do... I've So let me just consult the Word document. I also have... Um, I was actually going to touch on a little bit of food history because I had written down about military history. I know we've already mentioned that. Do you know that in Austria they eat food? It's called... Let me try my uh, Germanic accent. <laughs> it's called uh, Grenadier Marsh. It's like the food that they would give the Austrian grenadiers. It's like a big hearty cool. breakfast in Austria. Cool. It's full of carbs and it gets you going yeah, for the day. Exciting. And I'm that has now. that has basis in the Austrian grenadiers would eat this big meal. Uh, and I Think, and I just want you to very in 60 seconds talk about your are you still doing a Twitter oh account for yeah your, it's like the desert rats aesthetic yeah I need to get back on that I have a Twitter account where I tweet um, pictures from the western desert because it's such a really great aesthetic because it's sort of uh, late world war one early world war two stuff and it's the dead like the western desert is such a like eerily beautiful place and sort of photographs of it's a very interesting thing i should get back on it it's called orc punk it's available at orc punk on twitter go give it a follow if you like pictures of men in long shorts and long socks standing on <laughs> tanks looking very confused interesting it's, it's it's a very strong aesthetic and i vibe with it i will you know it's how i dress in the summer <laughs> it's like <laughs> great uh great flex it's like late 1930s 1940 british tanks in the north african desert right and yeah and other places sort of mix of the sort of not quite a sort of bog standard view of what the second world war looked like it's very alien look at it, it kind of looks like they're on mars yeah it's very diesel punk as well lots of goggles and stuff uh I have no idea what I'm going to caption this episode. It's kind of like a, <laughs> like a it's like a blotch of um, Star Trek, a blotch of quite almost uh, sad and sinister Nazis doing bad things, and then a Nazi historians being idiots, and then 
random miscellaneous stuff all we talked about sandwiches Nazi well, I think we talked about Nazi sandwiches and the best allegory for Nazism is horseradish. So I should point out, no, I like horseradish, but I don't like Nazis. Oh, no, cancel. can't. That's where we, <laughs> I might actually use this as the sample. No, I just, cancel. just to clarify, I hate Nazis. I think it's quite clear that I despise Nazis. I will beat Nazis up. But I am partial to a bit of horseradish. Thank you. It's been good to talk to you, John. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for this, Harry. Thank you.